So my message tonight will focus on the main idea that Paul rejoices in his imprisonment because it has been used by God for good. So we're going to explore how Paul viewed his trials and suffering as well as how he responded to his trials and suffering. Those two things are closely related because how you view something that happens to you in life will determine how you respond to it. So with that said, what we're going to see tonight is that Paul views his imprisonment as having served to advance the gospel, as we would have just heard in scripture. Furthermore, he responds to his imprisonment with rejoicing because he knows he is honoring God with his life. So let's start by looking at Paul's reason for writing this particular section of his letter. Starting at verse 12, we read, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul wants the Philippians to think rightly about his imprisonment. It's quite possible that in writing to them, he is seeking to remove any sorrow that they may have concerning him and his mission. You see, short of being killed, being locked away is probably the most serious thing you can do to a man. Perhaps the Philippians would have felt as though the cause of Christ had been dealt a huge blow. Though Paul was still able to write letters to the churches in order to teach them, he himself could not be out and about spreading the gospel far and wide, even as he had done for the Philippians. And now, maybe even other preachers would be discouraged from taking the gospel abroad on account of seeing one so central to Christianity being persecuted. The thinking goes like this. If Paul, the man to whom Jesus personally appeared in bright light and converted while he was on the road to Damascus, if this Paul could be locked away and made so ineffective, then what hope do I have? I'm nobody special. These are all things you could reasonably expect people to think when one of their leaders is jailed. So with this section of his letter, he dispels that notion with a statement to the contrary. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. His imprisonment is actually having the opposite effect to that which his enemies desire. So let's look at how. In order for us to come to the same positive view of being persecuted that Paul had, it would be helpful for us to look at what was ironically a series of events in which Paul himself persecuted the church back when he was known as Saul. Beginning in Acts 6, we see a believer named Stephen debating powerfully with the Jews. He was confronting them with so much truth that they were unable to refute him. So instead, they incite the crowd against him so that they eventually end up stoning him to death. And those who stoned him took off their outer garments for the grim task and laid their clothes at Paul's feet. In other words, Paul approved of Stephen's murder. And he was complicit in it since he looked after the belongings of those who killed Stephen. The Bible actually says that. And Saul approved of the stoning of Stephen. Afterwards, Paul relentlessly attacks the church, going into people's homes with what amounted to be search and seizure warrants from the Jewish authorities and dragging them off to jail. We see all this playing out in Acts 8. Well, naturally, we see people doing what you would expect them to do under such fierce persecution. They flee. They run. The scripture says they were scattered throughout the regions, the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But here's the important point I want you to notice. It's summed up in one verse in the 8th chapter of Acts, in verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The persecution of the church was the means by which the gospel in those early days was spread. Like a great wind blowing the, the seeds off a tree and carrying them afar so that they can take root in another place, God used persecution 
which was meant to crush the church, to advance it and propagate it. And it is this truth that God can and does use the persecution of the saints to advance the gospel that is firmly in the mind of Paul when he tells the Philippians, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now with that said, we can look at the specific ways that the gospel was advanced by his imprisonment. He makes the point that because of his imprisonment, the gospel had come to be known to the whole imperial guard. And this language is according to the English Standard Version, that imperial guard. If you read the King James Version or the New American Standard Version, you'll see that the gospel had come to be known in the palace or the Praetorian Guard, respectively. This is all talking about the same place. It's the very seat of power in the Roman Empire. Paul's circumstances had placed him in very close proximity to the emperor himself. And not just him, but all of those around him. Thus, the message of the gospel reaches even their ears. And furthermore, furthermore, the very reason he is there is because of his witness for Christ. He wasn't arrested for something else and just happened to be carrying the message of the good news. His case was peculiar because he was there for preaching Christ. Imagine it. Paul wasn't a violent man or a thief or anything like that. Why was he in jail? People, people would have wondered and asked that question. Paul says that not only had the gospel come to be known to the imperial guard, but also that it came to be known that his imprisonment was for Christ. He was in that situation simply for preaching the good news. Thus it came to be known by all that he wasn't suffering as an evildoer, but as a righteous man. Imagine the testimony that would have been to all those who came to know of Paul. Here was a man innocent of any crime, willing to suffer abuse for the sake of a man named Jesus who was supposedly long dead, but who Paul claimed was actually alive, risen from the dead. At the very least, those around Paul would have been convinced of his sincerity and that he wasn't trying to deceive them about the claims he made. At best, they would see the sustaining power of this Jesus who was able to bear up his servants even under persecution. But more on that later. Prior to arriving in Rome, Paul had been before Felix the governor and all in his orbit, King Agrippa and Bernice and all in their orbit, and finally Emperor Nero himself. If you read the book of Acts, you will see the progression up the ladder as Paul was moved and came into contact with powerful leaders. And we know for sure that Felix the governor, as well as uh, King Agrippa and Bernice and all of their entourage, heard the gospel. And furthermore, we know, we are sure that even members of Nero's own household were saved. Brothers and sisters, Paul's attitude here testifies to the sovereignty of God. The fact that God alone is in control of all things and uses every circumstance in our lives to bring glory to himself, whether we realize it or not. Paul here is providing comfort first to the Philippians and then to every believer throughout the ages who would read his letter that no matter what trouble believers face in this life, God uses it all for his glory. So don't get discouraged when you're insulted or mocked for your faith in the workplace. God knows why he made it that way. Don't get discouraged when we or those around us face health challenges or financial challenges. God knows why he made it that way. In all these things, we can be sure that God is working them all together for our good and his glory. But it doesn't end there. The second way that Paul's imprisonment advanced the gospel was through its effect upon the believers around him. We see in verse 14 that most of the brothers were made confident in the Lord, bold and fearless. But why did it have this effect? As I mentioned briefly before, 
having someone so central to your cause as Paul was to Christianity arrested and kept in jail for years can actually be an effective tool in the hands of those who wish to subdue that cause. Often the idea is to make an example of the jailed person so that others seeking to avoid a similar fate turn away from following the same path. There was a story in the news a few months ago in which two journalists from Myanmar were sentenced to prison for seven years each for reporting on the atrocities that the government had carried out against a certain minority group in that country. The government obviously wanted to conceal what they were up to and so sought to discourage anyone else from speaking up. Open your mouth and we will take your life. History is filled with stories like that. When the price for doing your job is too high to be worth it, fewer and fewer people are going to do that job. It's as simple as that. So in light of that fact, why did the brothers become confident, bold, and fearless when one could reasonably expect them to instead become anxious, cowardly, and fearful? The answer? Paul's imprisonment showed them that they served a faithful master. Paul did not despair. In fact, he rejoiced. Imagine seeing that. Think about it for a second. Imagine seeing a man have his freedom taken away and in doubt as to whether he would live or be executed. And yet he rejoices. Is he mad? No. Paul already knew what I am telling you now. That his circumstances were for God's glory. And it was evident in how he behaved such that those around him could see it and be encouraged. They could see that Christ had the power to bear up Paul in his affliction. That no matter what his circumstances were, Jesus could sustain him. Look again at what uh, verse 14 says. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They became confident in the Lord. It wasn't a confidence in man as if they were looking to Paul ultimately who had this power in and of himself to remain joyful despite his affliction. No. This was confidence in the Lord. In Jesus Christ. Paul's example became to them evidence of the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus gave that assurance after commanding his disciples to go and preach the gospel. The very same gospel for which Paul was facing persecution. Paul's attitude to his imprisonment reminded them of Jesus' promise. They didn't need to fear man and his walls and chains, for they serve the God who saves. The God who demolishes walls with a shout and breaks chains by his blood. So what does this mean for us? In the scriptures here we are presented with a man who encouraged many by using what was meant to discourage many. We need to be mindful of the manner in which we suffer. If you are a believer, the truth is that Jesus is your hope and salvation. Regardless of whether or not that salvation is an immediate rescue from whatever affliction you face, the truth is that your soul and eventually even your body will be saved. Let me put that another way. It ultimately does not matter if you die in prison or are physically harmed for your faith because we are not to fear man who can only kill the body but afterwards can do nothing. Rather, we fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. If you are a Christian, you must trust in God and your life and actions ought to testify that you do. The point I'm making is that when we go through hardship, We are quick to groan and complain when instead we should be rejoicing and giving thanks. 
Now, I'm not saying that Christians are not supposed to express pain and sorrow. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that even when we suffer and the pain and sorrow is heavy and it's visible, when tears are flowing down your face and your face is twisted in grief, when our head hangs low in sadness, what should also be just as visible is the truth that though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. We should recognize that how we respond to hardship is a powerful tool for testifying of our Lord's goodness, mercy, and faithfulness. It tells the world that we believe he is in control and that we trust him 100%. And it tells our brothers and sisters, continue fighting, for we have already won. Rejoicing in hardship is one of the ways we can serve our brethren, actually. Paul encouraged the brothers with his hardships, and we should be doing the same thing. Now, continuing on from verse 15, while we see that many were emboldened out of confidence in God and a sincere love for Paul, yet others preached Christ out of envy. We read... Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now it should come to no surprise to us that along with those who look out for your best interests, there would also be those who are only looking out for theirs, even at your expense. We know these people as bad mind people. The sort that would smile in your face and stab you right in the back. The sort that would tell you they care about the salvation of souls, but really all they want is the adoration of men and the number one rank you could say of best preacher or most successful or most honorable. People who are merely after titles and the accolades that accompany them. Paul says they preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. They wanted what Paul had and were willing to compete with him to get it. But what did Paul have? Well, he had a position of authority and honor within the church. He was an apostle after all. He was also a man who was near and dear to the hearts of many believers in parts of Europe and Asia Minor. Remember how this letter opens? With Paul thanking the Philippians for sending him generous supplies to aid him in his trouble. He was so beloved by the believers whom he had a hand in rescuing from sin that he was seen as important even to the point of receiving material gifts from them. So what do the bad mind people do? They seek to become more beloved and more honorable than Paul. Since Paul is confined and can't freely roam, preaching and teaching as he was accustomed, they would seize the opportunity to get out there and compete with him in the hopes that Paul will soon be a distant memory and they would capture the affections of the people along with whatever material or immaterial gain they could get. Their ultimate goal was not the glorification of God, but the glorification of themselves. The contrast here between the righteous and the wicked is really clear. Let's take on one hand the sincere brothers who Paul says preach Christ out of love, knowing that he was put in jail for the defense of the gospel. In other words, they knew the reason that Paul was confined. It was because he had boldly spread and defended the gospel. Thus, his imprisonment was meant to curtail that endeavor. So these sincere brothers, recognizing, recognizing this, seek to love Paul by continuing his mission. Even as the chief workman is laid up, the other workers mobilize 
Fear not, Brother Paul. We got you. When you seek to complete a task and you are hindered in some way, and it looks like you're not going to be able to get it done, someone jumps in and handles it for, for you. Y'all know what that's like? I remember a few weeks ago, my wife came home around 10 p.m. Uh, from book study at the pastor's house. Um, she had been helping to wash the dishes there, but she knew that she left our house with a sink full of dishes. So when she got home, of course she was tired, but like most people, she don't like leaving dishes in the sink overnight. When I tell you, I heard an audible sigh from her. As she turned and headed off to the kitchen, head hanging low, shoulders slumped. But then, there was a huge sigh of relief when she realized that I had washed all the dishes while she was out. <laughs> Meanwhile, taking care of our daughter, by the way. Just putting that in. I had her back, and it was a huge relief to her. So this is similar to what Paul experiences from the sincere brothers. It's the love of support. The comfort of knowing that when you are unable, there are those who care enough to jump in and supply what is lacking. Now take on the other hand, the insincere, who far from endeavoring to love and support Paul, sought to afflict him in his imprisonment. These people were so self-absorbed. Think about this. These people were so self-absorbed. They actually believed that Paul thought in the same way that they did. They must have assumed Paul to be just as prideful and self-serving as them. To believe that they could hurt him by preaching the gospel. You see, to them, the gospel and preaching it was merely a means for them to gain a claim and an honorable status. So since Paul was in confinement... He was unable to take part in this fame-seeking game that they were playing. They must have been saying to themselves, Ah boy, he can be so jealous of us. Let us preach the gospel all the more. Rub it in his face. Really make him wish that he was free. How foolish. Meanwhile, Paul is there saying, These men think they're bothering me? On the contrary, I am happy that they're preaching the gospel. For Paul, the spread of the gospel was his joy. He didn't care about himself. He, like John the Baptist, had the mindset of Christ must increase while I must decrease. Paul's attitude to all this is summed up in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Can it be said that we here at CRBC have the same attitude that Paul had? Is our primary concern the glorification of God through the advancement of the gospel? Or are we seeking our own interests? When we do good deeds, are we primarily after other people praising us? We really need to be on guard for the sin of pride and idolatry. Now, pride seems like a pretty obvious one, but idolatry? How, is, how does idolatry come into play here? Because in order to be like the insincere preachers, we need to remove Christ and His mission from the preeminent position and make it subservient to our own. We basically need to take Christ off of the number one spot. And put something else up there. It's an idol. Now rather than being his servants. And tools in his hand. We make him out to be the tool and the servant. He's the means by which we get what we want. This is evil. It is sin. We need to be more like the sincere preachers. We need to be on the lookout for where we can add our strength to places where there's lack. Because we love God and His people. Not for personal gain. 
We need to be like Paul saying, it doesn't matter whether I'm lifted high or brought low. As long as the gospel is preached, I will rejoice. Something else we could note about Paul's rejoicing in the preaching of the gospel, especially the preaching of the gospel by insincere preachers, wicked men, is what it shows us about his theological understanding. Particularly his understanding of soteriology. Now, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. It's the, it's the rules, you could say, about the way people are saved from their sins and reconciled to God. For example, we know that in order to be, for a, a person to be saved, one of the things that they must believe is that God sent His only Son to die for us. If you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. Simple. Those are the rules. So what rule can we glean from Paul's attitude towards the preaching of the insincere? Here it is. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's Romans 1.16. The gospel, that is, the good news about Christ's life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again. The good news that through Jesus Christ, God and man have been reconciled. And eternal life has come. That good news is the means that God uses to open the hearts of sinners to bring them to repentance. God has designed salvation in such a way that it does not depend upon human cleverness in preaching or human intellect in understanding in order for a person to be saved. Rather, it is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit working through the means of the gospel message which brings a man from death to life. That is why Paul can rejoice in the insincere preaching of wicked men because the effectiveness of the gospel message can neither be strengthened nor weakened by man. God is the one who sends it forth. God is the one who empowers it to penetrate stony hearts. And God is the one who activates it within the life of the sinner to transform them and conform them into the image of Christ. Salvation, or the new birth, is a work of God and God alone. Now with that said, there is legitimacy in caring about our Christian witness. We Christians ought to be mindful about the way we behave and the representation we give of our faith to the world. I would understand if someone said they felt uncomfortable with wicked men preaching the gospel because at some point along the line, their wickedness would become associated in people's minds with Christianity. Such that people watching them will say, Oh, this is what Christianity is? Well, these people are very hypocrites? I want them to do a damn more to God. That's a legitimate concern. As a matter of fact, Paul speaks to hypocrisy in Romans 2. He talks about the name of God being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of hypocrisy. People not taking Jesus seriously because of the sinful lives of those who claim to follow him. And that is a valid concern. We know it happens. We have probably all heard someone at some point in our lives mock God on the grounds that Christians or people who call themselves Christians are hypocrites. But here's the question. <clears throat> Does that hypocrisy stop men and women from being saved? No. An unbeliever may mock God because of the hypocrisy of wicked preachers. But if God uses that preaching to open that same unbeliever's eyes, he or she will repent and believe. We should care about our outward showing of righteousness, which is in keeping with our profession of faith, because it causes people to respect our God and give honor to his name. After all, the scripture says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
However, when the unbeliever gives honor and glory to God, that doesn't mean that they've been saved. When an an unbeliever sees you sacrifice your money to help a poor stranger and says, Wow, this Jesus must really be powerful. That doesn't mean that they themselves now trust in Jesus for their salvation. It doesn't mean that they have forsaken all other gods or idols to put trust in the one true God. They are more like the men who were on the ship with Jonah. They called out to a range of different gods to save them from the storm. And Yahweh just happened to be one of them. For such people, honoring God is simply a recognition on their part of Jesus' work. But it isn't a saving recognition. Salvation itself can neither be caused nor hindered by our behavior. That is the point. God is sovereign in the election and subsequent salvation of sinners. So getting back to Paul's letter, as long as the insincere preachers were preaching the true gospel, it didn't matter to Paul whether or not their motives were good. Because God was using them for good. This is again another encouraging reminder that God's will is unstoppable. We, like Paul, ought to rejoice in the preaching of the gospel because we know that God's word will not return to him void. It will accomplish everything God intended it to accomplish. We live in a culture that is filled with misconceptions about... filled with misconceptions about Jesus and the Bible and Christianity. And often those misconceptions are spread by those who should know better because they themselves are pastors. It can be discouraging to hear some of the things that are said. Some of these pastors are like the ones in Paul's time, seeking after wealth or acclaim from men. But every now and then, every now and then, They preach the truth. Every now and then you hear that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. Every now and then you hear, repent and believe in His name. When we hear the gospel being preached, we can rejoice because God is in control of the salvation of sinners. So we just finished looking at how Paul viewed his imprisonment and all the various ways that God used it to advance the gospel. So finally, we'll look at how Paul responds to it in light of how he viewed it. Here it is. Because he understood the good that came from it, as well as the support he had from the Spirit of Jesus and the prayers of the Philippians, he is able to rejoice. I'll say it again. Because he understood the good that came from it, as well as the support he had from the Spirit of Jesus and the prayers of the the Philippians, he is able to rejoice. Furthermore, Paul doesn't worry about the shame of imprisonment because he knows he is honoring God with his life. He knows that he was not put there for wickedness, but rather for doing righteousness. He knows that there is nothing his enemies can do to take away the hope he has in Christ. And so, he is able to respond to his imprisonment with joy. We read, starting from verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So let's examine the context surrounding why Paul said he would not be ashamed. We saw earlier that there were those who sought to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. Apparently, one of the ways they tried to do this was by trying to shame Paul for having been jailed. How do we know this? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 19. He says that 
through prayer and the help of the Spirit, this will turn out for his deliverance. What does he mean by this? What is it that will turn out for his deliverance? Contextually, we see that Paul is talking specifically about the attempted causing of affliction to him by the insincere preachers. So the text could just have easily read, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, the attempts to afflict me in my imprisonment by the insincere preachers will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul is saying that the prayers of the Philippians and the Spirit of Jesus would help him to thwart the evil intentions of the insincere preachers. He further says that he will not at all be ashamed. They're trying to shame me, but I shall not at all be ashamed. Now one can easily easily imagine how being jailed could be used to shame someone. Usually it is lawbreakers who get jailed. Bad people who have done something sinful. Perhaps, ironically, the insincere preachers went around slandering Paul as being what they were. Fake. Phony. Someone who said he was for Christ, but really, he was a wicked man. And he ultimately ended up where he belonged. In jail. Or maybe they accused him of not being useful to God, so God was punishing him for being a failure or for not being as committed to his mission as he should have been. You know, it's similar to Job's friends when he was being afflicted. They said things like, this is happening to you because you did something to deserve it. But this next one I think is the most convincing. They were trying to break Paul. To crush his hope. To cause him to lose faith. To do what Job's wife had told him to do when he was going through his trials. Curse God and die. Paul, you're in jail. You're worthless. You failed at the one job you had. So now just fade away while we preach Christ and become more prominent and praiseworthy than you ever were. Just give up. Curse God and die. Well, whatever angle they were taking, they failed. Paul said he would not at all be ashamed. He would not let being in prison bother him. And he certainly would not allow his circumstances to shake his faith in his faithful master. He says that through the prayers of the Philippians and the Spirit of Jesus, he would continue with courage. And rather than dishonoring God by losing his faith, he would finish the race and honor God with his life, even to the point of death. I want us to notice two things here. That prayer is indeed real and present help to those who are suffering and going through hardships. And two, the greatest desire of the godly is to present their lives as living sacrifices to God. So to the first point about prayer, Paul was sure he would be able to bear his trials because of the sustaining power of Jesus. And the means through which this power was brought from heaven down to work in the life of Paul was through the prayers of the saints. God has appointed prayer as one of the means through which his care and supply for our needs is obtained. We are told multiple times in scripture to ask God for what we need. It is not as if God doesn't already know or hasn't already planned to supply us. But we are commanded in scripture to make our requests known to God. Philippians 4 tells us not to be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And furthermore, 1 John 5 says... And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. This is the word of God. We already saw that 
the Philippians had supported Paul with material things. But now, more than this, they were also supporting him with their prayers. And this is in keeping with God's will, as we just saw in Scripture. All of us are commanded to love our neighbors and care about their interests. Well, this is one of the ways the Philippians loved their neighbor, Paul. This is one of the ways they cared for him. Both the Philippians and Paul could be sure that God heard their prayers because they were praying according to his will. And as the scripture said, if they could be sure that God heard them, they could also be sure to receive that which they requested. Namely, the deliverance of Paul. And indeed, God was gracious and delivered Paul. He was delivered from the shame of renouncing his Lord. Delivered from losing hope. Delivered from dishonoring God. Paul would, years later at the end of his life, valiantly say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This should be encouraging to us. When we see our brothers and sisters in Christ going through hardship, it can be hard on us as well. Often we are unable to do anything. Whether it be marital problems or medical problems or financial problems, sometimes there is nothing we can do to fix the problems in our brethren's lives. We can feel powerless to do anything to help. And indeed, most of the time we are powerless. But we have a direct line to the one who has all power. To the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. We can pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters that God bear them up in their affliction. That he keep them from losing heart no matter what. Of course, we can pray that God removes the particular problem from their lives. But more importantly, this is important, more importantly, we pray that they handle the affliction in a way that glorifies and honors God. When we do, we can know like Paul that God is faithful to hear us and answer our prayers. Let us always remember that our prayers on behalf of those in need is truly real and present help. And on the second point, the greatest desire of the godly is to present their lives as living sacrifices to God. Recall that the central or main idea of this passage of scripture is that we can rejoice in our suffering because we know that the sovereignty of God gives meaning to it. That even the wicked intentions of man meant to afflict the saints and crush the gospel actually are used to uplift the saints and advance the gospel. What we see here demonstrated by Paul is his commitment to this truth. Paul was willing to have God use all of him, even his body and his life, to bring glory to his name. He wasn't concerned about holding on to part of his life for his own enjoyment, but was willing to have it used completely by God even to the point of death. This is a tough question, but how many of us are willing to abandon our lives, our comforts, our possessions, our status, so that we can be used by God? And that's to the point of death, mind you. Now, God is merciful. Most of us will probably never have to face imprisonment and death because of our service to Christ. But are we willing to? Well, Paul was willing. Whether by my life or by my death, I will honor God. Not just the things I have, Lord, but my very self I will give to you for your glory. Paul presented himself to God as a living sacrifice. And his very body as an instrument to be used by God for righteousness. 
Paul didn't care ultimately about his own well-being, but only that Christ be glorified. I'm sure some of us could face persecution if we believed we would be quickly rescued in this life. But would we feel the same if we knew it meant prolonged suffering that would end in our death? Consider this excerpt from Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. And I quote, Those who desire that Christ may be magnified in their bodies have a holy indifference, whether it be by life or by death. They refer it to him, which way he will make them serviceable to his glory, whether by their labors or sufferings, by their diligence or patience, by their living to his honor in working for him, or dying to his honor in suffering for him. End quote. One way or the other, Paul will glorify God. We need to have the same attitude that Paul had and be willing to live and die for Christ. All the while trusting that God's sovereignty makes use of our lives and suffering to bring honor to his name. So in conclusion, I hope each of us has been encouraged by this portion of scripture, seeing a prime example of how a man of God ought to view and respond to trials. What I want each of us to take away from tonight is the truth that the sovereignty of God gives meaning to our suffering so that we can bear it with joy. That's the important part. It doesn't only give meaning, but it gives meaning so that we can bear it with joy. And this is how we will glorify God. When I talk about joy, I'm not talking about the simplistic, don't worry, be happy, that you hear in the world. Rather, I'm talking about a hope that is anchored in the faithfulness of Jesus. Assurance that is founded upon the promises of a good Savior. This hope and assurance and the strength that comes with it is available only to those who have believed in the name of Jesus Christ and are trusting Him alone for their salvation from sin. If you do not place your hope in Christ Jesus, then you will have no hope. The hardships you face in this life will not turn out for your deliverance. Rather, the end result of a life of suffering will be more suffering. Without Christ, there is no grand purpose for you. There is no light at the end of the tunnel for you. If you have lived your life in darkness, rejecting the light of Christ, then you will stay in darkness for all eternity, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You won't be able to breathe a sigh of relief when all is said and done at the end of your life. Even if you endured torture, endured slander, or endured some other form of hardship, if it was not for Christ, it was all a waste. You have no hope. I know this is grim. It's supposed to be. It's the heavy, serious reality of the wages of sin. Each of us is born a sinner without any hope of pleasing God. All of us have fallen short of God's perfect standard and are separated from Him because of our sin. God must punish us for it. And there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to appease His holy wrath. But there is good news. God is faithful. God said He would send a Savior and He kept His promise. And even now He is keeping His promise. Jesus of Nazareth, of whom the Scriptures testify, was in the beginning with God and He was God. He came to earth, born of a virgin, 
being found in the likeness of man, the image of a servant. This Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live, perfectly obeying God on our behalf. And he died the death that we deserve to die, bearing our sin upon a cross. But death could not hold him. And three days later, he arose, showing that he had power over death and demonstrating that payment for sin had been made and accepted by the Father. And he ascended to heaven, where he is even this day seated at the right hand of power on high. And he is coming again to judge the world in righteousness and finally and fully save all of those who believe in him. There is hope in Jesus. Believe this good news today. Repent of your sin if you haven't already. Turn from it and toward God and live. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is the hope that Paul rested in. It's the hope that gave meaning to his suffering. And it is the same hope that sustains us and bears us up even to this day. Praise be to Christ. Amen.